Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and today we're going to be talking all about our local criminal justice system, specifically the new Travis County Public Defender's Office. If you're newer to Austin, you might not know that up until last year, we were actually the largest jurisdiction in the country without a public defender's office. That is, until a lot of work done by community activists, a vote from the Travis County Commissioner's Court, and a grant from the state of Texas made it all a reality. And then in 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic, Adiola Ogunkeyade was hired as the first ever chief public defender for Travis County. She has spent much of the past year building up that office so that it can achieve its core mission, providing high-quality defense services to those who cannot afford it. To dive deeper into what exactly a public defender's office does, why Austin didn't have one before, and how the new office fits into our larger community conversation around criminal justice reform, let's listen in on an interview I recorded with our new chief public defender, Adiola Ogunkeyade. Let's give that a listen. Okay, I'm here with Adiola, and we're going to be talking about the Travis County Public Defender's Office. Um, you were recently hired as our, our county's first ever public defender, or chief public defender. I guess maybe to start, can you just tell people just very simply, like, what is a public defender's office? What do you all do? Sure. A public defender's office is an institution. It's a, uh, an agency that in its official capacity represents people who are accused of crimes, who otherwise cannot afford a lawyer to defend them. And because of our constitution, if you are accused of a crime, you have the right to have a lawyer defend you. And where you cannot afford that, the government, is tasked with ensuring that you get a lawyer. The public defender's office fulfills that role of providing an institutional um, defense office for people who cannot afford lawyers when they're accused of crimes. And that's what our office is here in Travis County. Yeah. And so I want to provide a little history and background for folks to how we got to where we are today. you were brought on to this role how long pretty pretty recently when when did you officially start starting this position it's it's been over a year now that i started i started april of 2020 height of the pandemic if if there is even a height i don't i don't even know how we measure that anymore um but i started remotely i was still in my previous state of virginia at the time and i was the first person, you know, in the office tasked with building it from the ground up, doing all the hiring of all the positions, um, creating its structure administratively, um, physically, um, all those different things uh, bound up in creating a public defender's office from scratch, creating any new thing from scratch. And it's been now, about a year and and a few months. Yeah. And so before this, um, obviously, like you said, you you weren't living in Travis County, but I'm sure you're familiar with a little bit of of the story. Um, Travis County was the largest jurisdiction in the country without a public defender's office. 
what did that mean? Did it mean that, you know, I think that's confusing for people to, to hear. And a lot of Austinites were maybe surprised to even know that when this really got into the news and became a heightened point of community conversation. How, how did our previous public defense system work? Because you still have to provide something for people. So how did it work without an official public defender's office? Right. And where I talked earlier about the Constitution requires that if someone can't afford a lawyer where they're accused of a crime, then the government should be prepared to make provision for a lawyer. It doesn't specify that that lawyer has to work for a public defender's office. Doesn't. Um, And so the way it had been done in Travis County and the way it, it, it is done mostly throughout Texas and in even other places in the country is a system of private appointments. So I'm a lawyer. I was a lawyer after graduating law school, taking the bar exam and being licensed to practice law. Many lawyers can put their names on a list to say, If there are people who need appointed attorneys, I volunteer to be on that list and to be um, an appointed lawyer for someone who can't otherwise afford it. And in many places across Texas and in other places in the country, um, you know, the way that works is it's an actual list of names of people who are lawyers that is controlled in some way by the court. And when there's a new case, the court chooses a person off of a list and says, you, you're a lawyer. You said you would do this and that's your new client. You know, go meet them and represent them. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's been done in Texas and is still done largely throughout Texas is 254 counties. Travis County in about 2014 moved to a system called a managed assigned counsel system, where instead of the list of attorneys being maintained directly by the court, it was now a list that is being maintained by a separate entity, a private entity in this instance, that manages the assignment of counsel. So those same lawyers put their names on the list that list is controlled by the management of the managed assigned counsel system. And that management ensures that the list of lawyers get appointed in an ongoing rotation. And, and, that, and yeah. that's the Capital Area Private Defender Service? Yes. So the, the name of the managed assigned counsel um, organization in Travis County is called CAPS or Capital Area Private Defender Service. And they are, you know, a, a nonprofit, a 501c3 organization that formed um, from lawyers in the community agreeing to create this management structure to control the list of attorneys who would take cases. Now, if you're an attorney, it's still, you know, your own sense of volunteering to, to be on that list. Um, many of the lawyers on the list also have their own private practices. So they represent clients that they specifically engage in, you know, it's for a fee, like a, 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 a retainer agreement 
um, some payment up front where the payment is exchanged directly between the lawyer and the client in a private way. And some of those lawyers handle exclusively criminal cases. Some of them handle some criminal cases, some other types of legal cases, right? That autonomy is not taken away from the lawyer um, because there's a managed assigned counsel plan. What the managed assigned counsel plan does and what CAPCS does is create a space outside of the court where lawyers, you know, have to get on the list and are, you know, required to meet certain requirements to handle certain types of cases and things of that nature. Uh, and that only existed in Travis County in 2014. And that is not a common arrangement across Texas. So I keep saying like across Texas and across the counties, when the Supreme Court in 1963 officially declared that the constitution says, look, state or government, if you're going to potentially try and take away someone's liberty, if you're going to accuse someone of a crime and you're going to say that person, you know, is subject potentially to the penalty of jail and loss of freedom, which, you know, is a big deal. Um, you have to provide for a lawyer. Constitution says that. Great. But the Supreme Court didn't say how. And so the Supreme Court didn't say, OK, every state, you must all do it the same way. And so states do it differently all across the country. In Texas, the Texas state government was like, okay, this is our burden, right? Cases are brought in the name of the state. Crimes are listed as state level offenses, but are prosecuted locally, right? It's a local police here. APD makes arrests because they say they saw something. And then, you know, that person is charged with a crime that's been named a crime at the state level, but it's prosecuted locally by the district attorney of Travis County or the county attorney of Travis County arrested locally by APD. And so the state of Texas decides that every county is gonna have to be responsible for figuring out how they're gonna get lawyers to the people who are being accused in the name of the state of crimes. Um, and so managed assigned councils don't exist in most of Texas's 254 counties. Public defender offices, are also very rare across Texas as 254 counties. Most counties, there's just a list that is controlled by the court. Mm -hmm. And so this managed assigned counsel, which is the CAP system and the public defender's office, explain like the big difference between them. Because my understanding is that about 30% of cases will um, you know, be managed by the public defender's office at some point. I know you all are still getting up and, and growing, but, and then still 70% to the other system. So what's the, the main difference between them? And, and maybe also tied to that, you know, why was there a push if we had this managed system to bring on a public defender's office? What does that allow for our community to have that we didn't have before? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say, right, the concept of a public defender's office is not new. The concept of there being an office dedicated with lawyers and other staff members dedicated to doing that representation for people who cannot afford lawyer, uh, you know, to pay for their own lawyer when they're accused of crimes, that's not new. It actually predates when the U.S. Supreme Court officially said, listen, you got to do this. They didn't say that until 1963. But the first inklings of an institutional defense office or agency 
existed since the 1800s in this country, right? In various states like California and New York, the precursors of public defender offices or agencies were sprouting up in that time because I think people recognize the fundamental unfairness of having somebody who is, you know, you know, indigent, poor, um, uh, low income, no income, being accused of a crime by the state, by the government, and then having all the resources of the government brought to bear on their life. And they can't pay for someone who's going to be focused on, well, what really happened here? And I work on your side to meet your interests. Um, and so the differences between a public defender's office, which have existed in many you know, states across this country for centuries now, and a managed assigned counsel plan is the institutionalized nature of the work. Just like a DA's office prosecutes cases all together, all of those lawyers who work for the DA's office, all of the staff members who work for the DA's office, their boss is the district attorney. That district attorney sets policy, is responsible for training, is responsible or you know, figuring out what training needs to happen to make sure folks understand how, how you know, to do the work, keeping with best practices. Um, and you know, is able to exercise independence and independent control and decision-making over how that office runs. That's the same with the public defender's office, right? Everyone who works in the public defender's office works at the discretion of the chief public defender. Um, as an office, myself, along with those who I um, have you know, helping me in leadership, we set the policy for all of our staff about what is best practice? What does it look like you know, to represent your client's interests directly? About how to do that. We help organize resources for our staff to make sure they're getting trained and they're knowledgeable and they understand the complexities of these different types of charges, that they understand the complexity of how to navigate you know, very serious cases to you know, what are considered more low-level offenses. Um, we pool our knowledge, our um, you know, sense of independence together in that space to create a space that is really focused on our individual clients separate and apart from, you know, the court system. Mm -hmm. A managed assigned counsel plan, CAPCS, they are working towards those same interests, but each individual attorney is still an independent practitioner. Mm. They are allowed to, after you know, some very minimal level standards, um, they are then allowed to make their practice and the and the way they practice. Um, those decisions on their own. And so I think, you know, what you find is there are some fantastic lawyers in that set, for sure. Um, and then what you also find is there are lawyers who may or may not have a wide variety of experience with certain types of cases. And so as like a solo practitioner or somebody who's, you know, independent, right, how do you learn? Where do you go for support and training um, and you know information to keep up with best best practices. 
And I think CAPS DS, you know, definitely tries to create the space where in the management, they're trying to point people to resources to make sure people are staying up to date on the best practices. But after a minimal level of, of you know, meeting some requirements, it's really up to those individual at- attorneys how much they do and don't take advantage of the resources that CAPS may have to get, you know, have gathered together to provide to them. Um, right. And, you know, outside of the minimal qualifications of, of what it takes for an attorney to get on the list that CAPS manages, right? CAPS ability to, um, uh, you know, be able to support a really diffuse network of attorneys who might be in offices scattered all across Austin um, or Travis County. They could be outside of Austin, Travis County, but qualified to be on the Travis County list, right? And that just becomes more difficult to have that diffuse network of people all working, you know, potentially different agendas related to their own private or personal practices, in addition to being attorneys who take the appointed cases in court. Right. And a public defender's office is a a complete total institution dedicated to that mission and that, you know, work exclusively. Mm -hmm. It also makes me wonder about some of the oversight or accountability structures built in there. You mentioned the district attorney's office, like our DA is an elected position. You, your position, you are appointed by the commissioners. I guess, can you explain a little bit of some of like, um, I guess the oversight or ways for the public to hold your office accountable or be involved in the, the policy making process or kind of what the overall vision is for the office? Yeah. And I'll, first I'll, I'll talk, you know, very broadly. I am an appointed official in Travis County. I'm appointed by um, a vote of the Travis County Commissioner's Court. And, you know, their vote could also remove me from that position. Um, If, you know, uh, residents um, in Travis County felt like our office wasn't living up to the standards and the work that, you know, we're expected to do to represent people, residents could go and take advantage of the, you know, general democratic processes that exist. Go give public comment to commissioner's court. Go in, um, you know, lodge actual, you know, complaints and things of that nature. And, you know, in a responsive government, you know, hopefully then commissioner's court, you know, is listening. They can issue directives to, to me, to my office, uh, to be more responsive in, in whatever ways are you know, manifesting in any comments that they hear or complaints. And yeah, that's a good old fashioned, like go speak to your, you know, your elected officials and they're supposed to hear you out. Um, and they appoint me with their power to do this work. And so, right, hopefully you can hold them accountable in the various ways that, you know, general government can be held accountable. Um, but also, right, and I think specific to this office, there's a, the history of its creation was one in which community members said, you know, from the beginning, they want to see an office that is uh, deeply connected to the community it serves, that is listening to and responsive to the needs of the community it serves. And so with that in mind, right, 
I take my role very seriously and try often and have been doing since we've you know, started um, our work since even before we started the core work, since I got on board to do affirmative outreach to members of the community to start hearing what they are seeing and hearing um, and what they want to see from the public defender's office, uh, right? It, it, it doesn't only work one way where members of the community can, you know, um, can reach out, I can reach out too. And so, you know, I do do that and try to, you know, maintain connection to the community, um, attending meetings, doing affirmative outreach to community groups that work with folks who are directly impacted by the criminal legal system, making sure that I make myself known and make myself available. Here's my cell phone number. Here's my email. You know, if you would like to talk to me, I'm happy to hear it. And, you know, regularly setting meetings with members of the community and, and, and community groups to learn what they would like to see from the office and to try to be responsible and responsive to that. Our budget is, you know, set by the uh, commissioner's court as part of the Travis County general budgeting process. Um, and so, you know, we are there in a public way, right? Anybody can go and see, you know, in the general Travis County government um, information page is like, well, how much is the budget of the public defender's office? That could be looked up. And it's not to say that they can't look up um, what the budget is for CAPCS because they can, right? CAPCS has a contract with the government of Travis County to do its work. And so, you know, any member of the public can look up and see exactly how much that contract is worth. How much is the government of Travis County spending on that service that they're contracting with this private nonprofit? Um, but the internal budgeting for, for our office, inclusive of, you know, salaries and all of that other stuff is public information. Um, and can be requested by members of the public and accessed by members of the public um, as public information. Yeah. You know, I want to talk a little bit about funding. I know that the creation of this new office in part was funded by a state grant that I believe is time limited, you know, it'll last for a certain number of years. And a lot of the funding really for this has to come from the county. And there's been a growing community conversation over the past few years that the amount of money we put aside for Indigenous I can never say that word in indigenous, in, indigent. <laughs> indigent, thank you. Indigent defense is not enough and, and, and pales in comparison to many of the other aspects of our criminal justice system that the County is in charge of. Like, um, as someone who's creating the new office. And also I know you have experience look like at this all over the country, like where are we at as a country as far as like funding for these kind of services? And it does seem like an area that people are really pointing an, an eye out to and saying this seems insufficient for the large task at hand. Yeah, no. And I think um, there is data across the country that show that the investment in indigent defense, broadly speaking, right? Whether that's a managed assigned counsel plan, whether that's how you pay lawyers who are just on a list um, or a public defender's office or some hybrid is nowhere near on par with the investments that governments make in the policing and prosecuting functions. Um, and 
that is true as true in Texas as anywhere, right? As you said, I, I've, I've done this work in different parts of the country um, over the course of my career. And it is just the deep, unfortunate truth, right? That there is in the world that we live in, in the US, like a sense that those who are accused of crimes are not deserving of, of good, strong defense that, you know, investing in it is something that is, you know, often, you know, last on the list of priorities for government. And obviously, right, governments have to make a number of decisions about how they spend taxpayer dollars and what they use to spend, you know, what they use the taxpayer funded money for. But like one, the people my office represents are part of that same constituency. They too are taxpayers. They are not outside of our community. They are not outside of the system that they may be, um, you know, living uh, at or below poverty levels doesn't mean, right, that they are not, you know, full-fledged members of our community whose rights and needs and interests should be looked at just as much as people who have money. Um, but I think we know in this country that that's not the way things often work. And so when it comes to the criminal legal system and criminal legal cases, right, you find in many places that there are great investments made in policing, right? So those are the agencies, law enforcement are the agencies that bring people into contact with the system, make charging decisions. Similarly with prosecuting, right? Um, and being able to say, you know, we're keeping the public safe. And I always am like, my clients are members of the public too. Um, and there's just a very uh, flawed way of thinking about it and what that works out to be in the wash of like how governments make decisions and prioritize spending is that, you know, spending on indigent defense is never high on the list. Uh, and I, and I know for sure that, you know, in the process of creating this office, um, back in, you know, uh, 2019, during the presentations and discussions with commissioner's court about, you know, what is in fact happening, you know, in Travis County to date at that point, um, with respect to indigent defense spending versus spending on police and prosecution or, you know, law enforcement, that there was a vast disparity um, in terms of just the investment. And I think I'll, I'll say this, right, in, in this day and age, right, what we know about the criminal legal system in Texas and Travis County all across the country is that the vast majority of people who come into contact with the criminal legal system are people who are poor or live at or near at or below the poverty line. Meaning this is not a system that ensnares the rich. It is not a system that ensnares the powerful. I think, you know, in this country, there's a fixation with sort of like the sensational cases and sort of like the sensational people who are accused, right? Because it, it does happen that people who are rich and powerful, et cetera, do get accused of crimes. And so that becomes what people think is this system. And that is not true. In Travis County, at least three quarters of the people who are arrested and prosecuted for, for offenses are eligible by dint of poverty 
for appointed counsel, whether that's a public defender or the um, managed assigned counsel plan, right? That is just the truth. And that truth exists in, you know, localities all across this country. This system is not one in which, you know, wealthy people are regularly having and coming into contact. And I think what we know about that is that's because the conditions that create poverty in people's lives are born out of, you know, deep systemic inequities uh, around other systems, whether we're talking about healthcare, whether we're talking about um, education, whether we're talking about housing, right? In all of those ways and all across all of those you know, um, points, right? The clients that are represented by a, an appointed attorney, right? Are those who are the most marginalized, the most at a disadvantage, the most vulnerable. Um, and like, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention sort of like the disproportionate people of color um, in that population because of, you know, the country's uh, history of, of, of institutional and systemic racism, right? Creating this space, this criminal legal system space where it is mostly populated by people who are marginalized, um, disenfranchised, and you know, deeply vulnerable in our society across any number of life metrics, and that's, you know, what is the deep like what is what is most devastating about this is those are the folks who need the most support in many ways, and a criminal case only further entrenches those um, inequities in folks' lives. If you were you know struggling to get an education or to get access to affordable housing before you were arrested, there are any number of ways in which an arrest and prosecution, you know, makes it even more difficult for you to do that. And so when we talk about investments, like if a community is prioritizing those who are most marginalized um, and most disenfranchised, right, more thought needs to be paid to indigent defense and the ways in which a modern day indigent defender, you know, is looking at those systemic inequities as a driver of contact with the criminal legal system and bringing that to bear on, you know, what is actually a just outcome in a case. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, the way this fits into our larger communities conversation around criminal justice reform and larger inequities. And a lot of times that conversation, quite frankly, focuses at the city of Austin level and sometimes not at the Travis County level, which is actually where a lot of our criminal justice system happens. It's not where APD is, but it's where the sheriff's office is and our jails and court system. And, you know, it, it also makes me, uh, think a little bit about when we're, yeah, when we're talking about funding, when we're talking about the budgeting process, I know that there are really big human consequences for people who then are not receiving, you know, an adequate level of defense. I know studies have been done about the consequence of even spending a night or two nights in jail um, can do for someone. And so we're looking at, you know, I feel like the city of Austin level also, also often looking at spending things like what programs can we create or initiatives can we do? But it seems like what you're showing here is yet another avenue of like, if we can prevent some of this from happening or make sure people are, um, receive a a good level of, of support in that part of the system, it might be able to help feed into other programs or prevent the need for them in the first place. Yeah, definitely. 
And I think, you know, something that is often missed in the conversation and shouldn't go unsaid repeatedly is that the vast majority of people who come in contact with the criminal legal system are charged with what are considered, you know, low level offenses, misdemeanors. In Travis County, it's no different, right? Misdemeanors outstrip felonies if if that's the way in which like folks measure like this, how serious a charge is, how serious it is an alleged action that someone took that sees them accused of, of breaking the law. Um, the vast majority of cases are misdemeanors. Um, our data bears that out that, you know, we have, we, we, we are appointed to more misdemeanor cases than felony cases because that's how they are um, arrested and processed and prosecuted. Um, and, you know, when we think about sort of like what, what are common offenses, right? It's stuff like criminal trespass. And what does that look like? In reality, it looks like somebody was at a Walmart and, you know, they had a stay away order. Why did they have a stay away order? It's probably, you know, many times people who live with and experience mental illness um, and are, you know, told to not come back to a Walmart when they do. And then they're arrested for it um, on, you know, criminal trespass allegations, um, things of that nature, criminal trespass. And in the first quarter that we started our work in, in January of 2021 through April of this year, you know, our data showed that criminal trespass was the, was the third most common offense that we were appointed to, right? Wow. It's class, class B misdemeanor, um, most of the cases end up getting dismissed, um, particularly with the new, you know, uh, uh, county attorneys uh, administration, right? Well, many of those folks end up spending multiple days in jail before that happens. Um, they end up, again, further disconnected from the types of things that you would want someone who experiences mental illness to be connected to, right? Um, continuity of treatment, if, if, if they were receiving treatment in the community, continuity of, you know, uh, services uh, for housing and things of that nature. And it's, you know, it is a thing where even with the case being dismissed, right, that arrest is still gonna exact a pound of flesh from that person. Um, and set them back from, you know, what, what I think as a community, you know, we should want to see with respect to people who live with mental illness, right? Living happy, healthy, whole, stable lives, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that is, the, that is the space in which the criminal legal system in Travis County and, and just about every place across this country operates. Um, and there isn't enough conversation, I think, or I think there's never too much conversation that can be had about that, about that reality. Um, you know, some of that comes with fines or fees or other payments that, you know, many times don't get made that if, if they are made it's people sort of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul to, to get money. Um, it's just a, a, you know, a system in which from every angle, like, people are being um, pushed deeper into, um, you know, a marginalized life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned earlier building like a modern um, public defender's office 
for you as, as someone who really is, is getting to build this fresh, you know, we didn't have one to ex- that existed before. What are some of your underlying like philosophies and um, like what's kind of guiding you that you want to instill in this new office to set it apart and kind of improve the, the quality of life in our community? Yeah. And I, and I really, you know, I think our office owes a, a debt of gratitude to the community members who came out in full force to, you know, talk about their vision for what a public defender's office in Travis County would look like. Um, and, you know, on their own, they set out a set of, of goals that they would want to see the office uh, try to achieve. And, and, you know, they were, you know, for the office to be a client-centered um, office that, that really was looking at what are the needs of my client and how do you address them um, in a zealous uh, capacity as their, as their attorney. And not beholden to you know the court, not not feeling like I have to please the judge, I have to please other people. But you know what is this? Who is this person that I represent, and how do I center them in my decision making and thinking and my advice? Um, the community also articulated um, wanting to see the office be um, responsive to changing and evolving community needs. Right in Austin, Travis County, right there is right now a huge affordable housing crisis, a huge um, crisis around uh, people who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, you know, various data show there's not enough um, treatment options for people who are living at or below poverty and uh, who experience mental health or who, um, you know, suffer from substance use disorder. And so, you know, they wanted to see the office be uh, responsive to those needs and figuring out how to serve the population that exists coming through the, the, the legal system here. Um, they also wanted the office to serve as a strong um, independent institutional voice for public defense, right? And, and really be un, unafraid of speaking up and speaking out about what you know, we might see. I think the power of a public defender's office is that, right, our the data, right? Our individual clients, when we collectivize their stories, we, we get to see from their lived experience patterns and trends and practices about policy decisions and things of that nature. And really, you know, as an institution being focused on that level of work as well, to be able to speak up about like the things that affect the decisions that are made by other systemic stakeholders and actors um, that impact our client communities' lives. Um, they also wanted to see the office, you know, practice holistic defense. Holistic defense is a type of practice in which it's not just client-centered, but really stepping back and seeing all the ways in which our client's case creates, um, you know, systemic ripples in other directions. So that's things like, okay, Somebody is arrested for um, uh, whatever charge. Are they a parent? Where are their kids? What is happening? <coughs> excuse me. While mom or dad is in custody, right? Um, are they a student? How does this case, if at all, impact their ability to 
continue on getting their education? How does this case, if at all, you know, potentially disrupt their ability to qualify for things like student loans and, and things of that nature? Are they, you know, somebody who receives public benefits? And, you know, will those benefits be cut off uh, as a result of this case, or will they not be entitled to receive those benefits, right? And, and benefits can be things like you have a voucher through the housing authority of the city of Austin, Hakka, and an arrest alone is potentially enough for uh, the housing authority to potentially discontinue your access to your voucher. Um, and so, right, being a holistic defender means understanding the ways in which that arrest in that case is not the sum total of the ways in which this incident and these accusations may affect your client's life. Mm. And thinking holistically about how do we now bring that knowledge to bear on a more fulsome defense of that person, a more fulsome representation. So we have in our office uh, staff that are, you know, attorneys and non-attorneys alike thinking about our clients in that way and working in an interdisciplinary team to try and make that assessment and find the resources and support for our clients that they need. Another huge area is, you know, is your client a citizen of the United States or not? Um, not being a citizen. So you, you don't have to be undocumented. You could be undocumented, but you could even be someone who has a lawful permanent residency here. And the arrest and, you know, potential, a potential conviction could mean the difference between staying in the country that may be the only country you've ever known since childhood um, or being sent uh, away to a country that may have been your birth country, but you have no family ties or connections to, et cetera, or that you face a risk of violence um, or abusing. So, so a little bit it, of case management as well, or connection to resources. Yeah. And, and really, you know, prioritizing according to how our clients want to prioritize. I've met many clients, parents who are arrested for something. And, and as a result of that, you know, there is a, now a family case in, in family court that happens. And I've had clients say, listen, I don't care how the criminal case resolves. Like, I just need to know that I will not, you know, lose my rights to my kids, that I can still parent them. Like, how do we prioritize that? Hearing that, understanding that that exists is just a way that you need to be trained as an attorney to know, hey, this might happen. I should want advise my client that could happen and then listen to hear what they think and what they would want me to do. And I take my directives, right? I center that person's mm -hmm. desires in how I approach the case, right? So, you know, that's the, that's the space in which, right, there's a modern day practice that looks beyond just the charges to figure out sort of like, how can we make sure that at the end of this, no matter what, you know, this person is not further destabilized in ways that, you know, could be um, irreparable in their lives going forward. Right. And so what's the status of the office right now? I know that you've been kind of growing and, and hiring on more attorneys. How, how much staff do you have? And um, also what's the makeup of that, you know, that, that split, how, how is it decided if someone's case gets, um, you know, heard by the public defenders, handled by the public defender's office or handled by that separate case management system? 
Yeah, I mean, the office is growing. I'm, I'm as proud as anybody of sort of like how it, how we've come together. Right? We've only ever existed in a pandemic, which yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a thing, right? It, 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 it has been quite the journey and quite the experience to try and create something anew. Um, in, you know, I think the strangest times that many of us have ever lived in in our entire lives. Uh, and so we, we, you know, we press on and, you know, we hired everybody remotely. It was not until maybe now about a month ago, three and a half weeks ago, that I met many of the colleagues that I had been working with for several months for the first time. Um, you know, we started, there wasn't even an, a, a, an office space that was large enough non-COVID times, let alone in COVID times to house all of us. So, you know, in preparing itself as a county to now create this institution, Travis County worked with, you know, the State Indigenous Defense Commission, TIDC, to create the paper blueprint for the office. And that blueprint, you know, is, is, is sort of like, well, how much is this going to cost? Because, you know, money is always a factor. And how do we, you know, um, pace that out over the four years that, you know, we're going to have state investment to help us build this, this entity. And so, you know, they set out before I ever came to town, right, before I was probably ever a thought in anybody's mind about this role, right, they put on paper sort of like, okay, you know, let's fill the office year after year with this number of new positions um, that are divvied up in this particular way. And, you know, that we know from budgeting expense-wise cost this amount of money. Let's dedicate this much to operational expenses um, year over year uh, and grow the office's capacity to eventually reach up to 30% of representation um, across Travis County by the, you know, mid-2024 fiscal year. And so, you know, that looked like the first half of that of that four year span, it's it's four years, but split over five fiscal years. So we started in April, 2020 with my hire. And, you know, I was then brought on to hire, you know, our base level administrative staff and office manager, financial analyst, right? To, to help me do the administrative pieces to get, you know, things sorted. Um, then, you know, we were next budgeted to have uh, 23 people, by the end of this fiscal year, fiscal year 21, um, which ends September 30th. Um, and we're at 20, our last three start respectively two on July 12th, so in a couple of days, and another in mid-August. And so we'll have reached our you know, mark on paper, which is having 23 full-time staff. The split is you know, about 12 you know, folks who are um, attorneys and you know, one of them is an attorney who specifically and expressly is working on the immigration pieces for our non-US citizen clients, understanding and advising clients about the potential impact on their status in the country um, from the, the accusations and helping us figure out a way to, to mitigate or completely avoid the most harsh of those consequences. Um, we have, you know, a social worker, uh, two investigators, um, obviously legal secretaries, um, you know, uh, who are assisting in the administrative work day in, day out of the office. They are our, 
front, you know, front line when it comes to people calling in and, and saying, hi, you know, am I represented by the public defender's office right. and helping people figure that out? So that's, that's our, you know, configuration right now. How do we get our cases? Right now we get our cases in the same way that the Capital Area Private Defender Service gets their cases. Travis County uses a, a, an electronic a, appointment is, is what it's called, appointing a person, appointing an office. Um, there's an appointment management system that is you know, an electronic database. After somebody is arrested and booked into the Travis County Jail, their information eventually gets entered into that electronic database sorted by like, you know, a type of case, et cetera. And then that system, you know, on the other end of that lives the names of the attorneys who are, you know, who work for CAPS or who are on the CAPS list. And our office is represented by our institutional name. So our individual attorneys aren't in there. It's just the public defender as the titular, you know, institutional placeholder. And so that computer system, you know, pushes the cases by individual to those different um, names in this electronic database. And we get an email um, that is, you know, um, uh, received by our uh, administrative staff. And they start the process of opening that case, making sure that, you know, the attorneys who do the assignments know we got a new case. Let's make sure we're assigning this to, you know, the right lawyers who have the right level of experience um, and so on. Okay. So it's not as if you handle certain types of cases and the CAP system handles others. It's all mixed in. And this 30% number is something that, you know, maybe you're all working towards, or it could change, I guess it's a policy decision. So it could grow or shrink or whatever as funding becomes available or. Right. And the funding right now was, you know, put on paper in a, you know, a way to, to think they could project, okay, if we give them this much funding and this many staff out over time, that should be consistent with the history of how cases have come in in Travis County enough to get them to 30% of representation. None of that ever took into account COVID. COVID didn't exist at the time. (laughs) Um, There were no, right, the the district attorney and the county attorney are new administrations. So things are shifting in real time. And, you know, my job is to be aware of those shifts and to have our development shift and ebb and flow in relation to that, to be really responsive to what's happening in real time on the ground right now. Yeah. And so we're getting close to the, to the end of our time, but I want to make sure we have a chance to, I guess, close on a little bit of your, um, what you hope to see next for the public defender's office. And I know you, you have some experience, like we mentioned before in other, did you work in the Bronx public defender's office? Yeah. Yeah. Like what do you, you know, as far as like what you're, you're bringing to Austin or you've seen work well in other cities, like what do you, what do you kind of envision? And then also maybe to close, if people want to learn more about your office, get engaged and, you know, are, are interested in criminal justice reform efforts in general in Travis County, what advice or ways do you feel like people can get engaged? Yeah. You know, my background is, um, as a public defender, um, or as a lawyer who's only ever represented indigent people, right? I've, I've, you know, I've never been a, a lawyer who has not represented people who are indigent, right? People who live at or below the poverty line. Um, and, you know, I started my career in New York City. I worked at um, an organization called the Bronx Defenders in the South Bronx um, in, you know, situated 
in the heart of the South Bronx, uh, located in, in the, you know, at the time, poorest urban congressional district in the United States, um, and represented men, women, and some children, right, who were accused of, of crimes in that jurisdiction. And, you know, that office was the pioneer of the holistic defense model um, and founded that practice of creating interdisciplinary teams of different types of lawyers. So a criminal defense lawyer, an immigration lawyer, um, making sure there's a social worker, an investigator, making sure there's someone who understands the civil legal pieces like driver's license suspension or public benefits mm -hmm. disconnection, right? They created that model. Um, and so I worked in and had my foundational training in that office. Um, I, I, I understand that I am deeply spoiled in that way because I know in many offices across the country, right, those resources don't exist. Um, and so, you know, the community here saying they wanted a holistic defender was one of the things that attracted me to this role, knowing the benefit of that type of work for the clients. And there have been studies that show, you know, that holistic defense and holistic advocacy saves um, folks days and time in jail, um, as opposed to a more traditional model where there isn't that blend of interdisciplinary advocates. And that in turn, saving, you know, people, human, humans, that time in jail ends up, you know, the benefit to the, the government is it saves you money, right? You don't have to spend money on jail bed days and things of that nature, right? Um, so that was one of the things that was attracted to me. I did that work for about a decade, um, you know, eventually, you know, working my way up to like a, a, you know, a senior director level position in the organization, being responsible for management decisions there. Um, and, you know, left that work uh, and, you know, took what I learned there and moved to Virginia, where I was fortunate enough to be able to start a brand new program at a 50 year old indigent legal services um, organization. Uh, that was focused specifically on the intersection between the civil legal system and the criminal legal system, where, you know, my program at the time was focused on the ways in which contact with the criminal legal system creates or exacerbates poverty in people's lives. So that indigent legal services organization called Legal Aid Justice Center, you know, was doing traditional representation of people in eviction proceedings, doing traditional representation of, of indigent people, right, people who are unable to afford their own lawyers um, in eviction proceedings, in you know, uh, proceedings around their termination of public benefits. And you know, my experience in years at the Bronx Defenders taught me that you know, there's a criminal cases create those same consequences in people's lives and traditional legal services organizations often overlook the people ensnared in the criminal legal system who are having these same things, right? You can be evicted from your home as a result of an arrest and a charge, um, regardless of conviction. You can lose access mm -hmm. to your public benefits. So that was the work that I was doing in Virginia. At the same time, I had the benefit of, from that position, you know, teaching a civil rights uh, course at UVA Law School um, and sort of like talking through the bigger, like systemic issues um, that are really civil rights issues, right? Um, when you put someone in jail or prison who is mentally ill, what is the burden of the government to provide for their mental health in those facilities, whether it's for a day, a week, a year, however long someone is in a jail or prison who lives with mental illness, are you creating conditions where they're still being treated humanely um, and with dignity 
Are you providing for their mental health, their physical health, right? What we know of people who live at the poverty line is they are disproportionately um, experience physical health issues, mental health issues, food insecurity. So when you put them in this system, right, what are you doing to maintain their human rights, their humanity? Um, and if you are not doing that, are you not violating their civil rights? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being able to work on those sort of like broader pieces through a clinic in, in law school, like gave me, you know, a different look at the same work. And I think I really just missed working at the local level, right? That organization was statewide. And I feel like the way people experience these systems is really at the local level. Um, and so I was, I was excited. I have many, you know, friends who are here in Austin, Travis County, who told me about this fight. My former boss at the Bronx Offenders was invited to speak um, uh, to the community when it was considering like what type of organization it wanted to see here, if it was gonna build a public defender office, and that was attractive to me to see a community step up and say, this is what we want. Um, and I'm shocked that, you know, they picked me amongst many other well-qualified candidates to start and create this. And I think what I want to see from the public defender's office, at least in the immediate term, right, I think there's the very specific and discrete picture that is, you know, expressly relevant to the work of, a, of an institutional defender, which is you know, exercising our independent judgment as to how best to represent and to fight for our clients and defend their rights in the courts. And I think, you know, it's something that you only know if you see it up, up close, which is the role of a public defender because of your institutional independence, right, is it is, it, it, it can be, and I think should be practiced differently. Um, and, you know, getting courts to recognize that is no small feat, like getting courts to recognize, um, you know, that, you know, we're going to be making decisions with our client's best interests in mind, because that's the way it should be done, right, is, is not um, something that I think we talk about a lot, but it's something that as a practitioner, like, you know, there's a difference. Um, and standing up in that court space really like fiercely and, you know, unabashedly advocating for your client without fear of like, you know, being, you know, put out of your practice because the court sort of like controls whether you're going to get the case or not. And doing that in a way, you know, with obviously the mind of like what our client's rights are and, you know, expressing them to the fullest extent possible. And that's the very sort of like narrow space. But like more broadly, right, I want to see this office be what the community wanted it to be, which is a space that the community could, could come to both physically um, and an institution that the community could feel was listening to them um, about what they're experiencing and how they want to see, you know, their advocates um, tackle those issues, speak up about them, um, participate in them and not feel like separate and distance um, the way sometimes it might feel to, to be a government agency. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it and letting our listeners learn more about how all of this works. It can seem so confusing, I think, often for folks. So thank you so much for taking the time to explain it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
And, and if people want to learn more about your office, what's like a good website or, or way to follow along? Um, you can email us at public defender, all one word, at Travis County TX, all one, dot G-O-V. Um, we're still building out our website, right? Some of these pieces of riding the bike and, and building it at the same time yep. are coming together more slowly. But yeah, there's, there's you know, our email address is, is checked daily, all day. Um, our main office number, 512-854-5100. Um, and yeah, we, we, we're open for, for business, right? Since COVID, we finally now have a place of, of our own. We're at 1010 Lavaca, second floor. Um, yeah, we're, we're happy to you know, receive people into our new space. Um, and we hope to develop it into a space where like community can come by and you know, potentially like use the computer to look things up and, and things of that nature. Great, thank you again so much for chatting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. And that's our show for today. The Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership from the Austin Common and Co-op Radio. The Austin Common is a local news source that helps Austinites be informed and make a difference in their community. You can learn more about the Austin Common by visiting theaustincommon.com or following us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. And this show is hosted by me, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And uh, one quick friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin. So thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And a final thank you to the Tiara Girls, the amazing local band whose music you hear at the start and end of this podcast. You can listen to their music on Spotify or follow them on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band. That's at Tiara Girl Band. And that's our show. Thanks for listening.